welcome to MS podcast. Today in our business breakthrough, I have a gentleman, I need to ask David Smart, how does he sleep? Because seriously, you're a managing partner um, and a CEO uh, for different uh, companies and not one, but several. So my first question I asked said, when do you have time to sleep? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's challenging, but I've learned to focus on, you know, what's important uh, and not get caught up in the details. Uh, and, you know, as I've, uh, you know, evolved, uh, you know, it's the old cliche about, you know, working smarter, not harder. Um, yes. And, you know, and of course, having, you know, having good people um, that, uh, you know, that you can trust and um, you know, having a solid culture. Uh, you know, and being comfortable in, um, I think the old Ronald Reagan adage, trust but verify might, uh, you know, come into play here where uh, you're not constantly micromanaging and, uh, uh, but, you know, you have the, the, the infrastructure and the approaches in place where you're in a position to, you know, trust but verify. So, it looks like you're very diversified portfolio when it looks I'm looking at your companies. Mm -hmm. So how did you got started to create your companies? Because you know, as I'm interviewing more CEOs, I want to know their stories, but I want to know what triggered you to start your businesses. So, you know, I was uh you know, my, my dad was a very strong influence on me. He was, uh, you know, he was a blue collar worker um, and it was very entrepreneurial. Um, so, you know, he had a whole bunch of, uh, uh, you know, side hustles, if you will. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, that rubbed off on me. So, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't just, I just, I, I wasn't the type of kid that just cut one neighbor's lawn. I was the type of kid that cut you know, 12 different neighbors' lawns, and at the age of 12, had, you know, a couple of employees. Uh, and so, you know, that entrepreneurialism, you know, was seated in me very early. Uh, after college, I started, uh, you know, went the exact opposite route. Uh, you know, I started with big corporate and uh, uh, went to work for AT&T. And while it was an incredible experience and I had an incredible amount of success, um, and, and learned an awful lot about uh, management structure and leadership. Um, after 12 years at AT&T, I had found that uh, to continue to pursue a, a career in large corporate, I was going to have to, can, in essence, uh, move into different uh, corporate uh, positions, different rotations. Uh, and I just did not, it just wasn't... Uh, something that was attractive to me. It was, uh, it was a job, not a passion. Okay. Uh, so it was very fortunate. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, the events around nine 11, uh, you know, also had a, a, an impact in the timing. Uh, I was, uh, I just had my first son earlier that year. And at the end of that year, uh, in 2001, uh, I was offered a, a very lucrative, uh, uh, early retirement package from AT&T. And I was really looking around things and, uh, you know, felt that I had an obligation to follow my passions, especially, you know, in the events of the time. And it's in, in probably in hindsight, one of the most incredibly stupid decisions I have ever made at the time, <laughs> I quit a very core, a very comfortable corporate job and, uh, uh, took the re early retirement money and started funding the first of, uh, you know, what turned into a number of businesses, uh, back then. Uh, so that's, uh, um, yeah, I think that it gives you somewhat of the impetus uh, of, you know, what I see as successful entrepreneurs, uh, you know, and successful businessmen and women across the board is to, you know, really follow, uh, follow their passions. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm shedding any, you know, great insights here, if you will, but uh, I think sometimes the basics bear, uh, bear repeating. And I found it quite interesting that, you know, you could have stopped at one companies, but you basically went from one to several companies, which is amazing. Yeah, they had, you know, they had different purposes. They had different markets. Uh, and you know, part of the impetus for you know, two of the earlier, two of the companies 
being separate is one um, uh, had uh, found some success in federal government contracting. And just from a, you know, a corporate and capitalization structure perspective, uh, it, it just made uh, it just made good business sense to separate the uh, you know the the corporate and the federal contracting business into a separate corporate entity uh, because yeah. it had to be run entirely different than uh, you know than the, than the uh, entity that was focused on commercial markets. No. From the government, uh, then you segregate it into different entities, which makes sense because otherwise it's extremely painful when you have a company, then you have to segregate everything. So you went with the government for this, then you decided to create other companies in, in, a, in between because uh, the government telecom solution was for government, but did you do the one as well for um, public or general public or companies or yeah, commercial? So yes, commercial. Yeah, so, yeah. so I Networks Group uh, was the firm at the time uh, that focused primarily on the commercial side of the business, and Innovative Government Telecom Solutions focused on the the federal side of the business. Uh, and then an additional company that was created, uh, iNetwork Services, uh, was uh, it was established to focus more on information technology and staffing, which is a okay. very different uh, you know product solution yep. or services solution in the marketplace. So it made sense to uh, to again have uh, you know that business uh, you know, separated into a you know its own corporate entity. Um, because it also allowed for different, you know, man- management structures and ownership structures and capitalization structures, um, you know, for each of the businesses. Because each one of them had a little bit different, uh, uh, you know, kind of cash flow requirements and capitalization yep. needs. Um, and so, by having, you know, those kind of separate entities, uh, you know, I did not, uh, which I probably should have, if I would have, you know, really thought it through it early on, uh, you know, structured it under a single holding company. Um, which is what I would do uh, if I were to do it all over again, or do something similar in a you know a multi core you know multi uh, entity type of operation. Uh, but uh, uh, you know it added obviously some additional overhead, but it also created you know, by by structuring it in the way we did. It also created an incredible amount of flexibility. That's awesome. So when you decided to start that first company and you went directly to telecom solution or did you decided to do something else different or why did you choose the telecom? Wanted you, I'm going to ask someone to be the devil advocate on this one. Did you want it to compete against AT&T? <laughs> um, it wasn't so much against, you know, as a desire to compete against AT&T as it was, uh, you know, the, the, the immense amount of knowledge and, and yeah. resources and relationships I had in that industry um, it just made it a natural uh, you know, area to focus as a, you know, place as a, you know, as a, uh, you know, a, a new entrepreneur that really, you know, had, you know, didn't know what I was doing at the time. Uh, it just made sense to, uh, you stick with the stick with the the, the widgets you know, I knew, then uh, you know, try to uh, uh, try to go into something uh, in an industry that I had absolutely no experience in. So, was it difficult for you when you started your company and to get the client? Because, like you said, you went with government uh, contracts. So, did you already had your entries when you went there, or you just said, "Okay, I'm going to go with I see a need in telecommunication with government, and I'm going to go straight to." Uh, see if I can get my foot into the door for the government contracts. So it was really a kind of, you know, an evolution, if you will, um, you know, knocking on a whole bunch of doors, some of which, you know, I knew on the commercial side uh, and then, you know, just uh, leveraging the network and uh, getting introduced to new people. And, uh, you know, we started the commercial business uh, in, you know, in very early 2002 and it really wasn't until I want to say it, it, two years or so later that uh, we came across some opportunities with uh, some prospective clients that were uh, that were they were subcontracting opportunities to us, and uh, these clients were bidding directly. And 
you know, again, through, you know, just hard work and networking and, uh, uh, you know, and constantly learning, uh, we figured out a way for us to get into federal government contracting as a, you know, as a prime contractor. Uh, but we really didn't get that business launched until I want to say 2004. Um, and it really didn't get a lot of traction until it took us about three years on the federal side. So while we were getting good traction on the commercial side, um, you know, the federal side is, uh, you know, it's, it's a very interesting environment, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from the perspective of it's you know, incredibly difficult to break into, Yes. Uh, but it is also once you're successful in breaking into it, it's incredibly lucrative um, and, uh, you know, and, and can provide you know, significant growth, uh, but you have to also be very, very, uh, especially you know, for a company like ours, which was primarily selling to the Department of Defense, uh, you, have to, you have to be very good at what you do. Uh, yes. Yes. We were you know, we were consistently reminded by our you know our customers, the contracting officers, that uh, you know the capabilities that we were being asked to provide. You know, if we, unlike most commercial projects, I would you know I would tell my team, you know, if we were providing say you know connections to support uh, the ATM network for, you know, you know, pick a large national bank. Uh, and if, you know, that network connection were to fail and their ATM network went down, well, the consumer can go across the street to another, you know, large national bank and still get their cash. Uh, you know, in the federal contracting side to the Department of Defense, our contracting officers would consistently remind us that in that business, if we failed, people died. And we really took that into our culture yeah. um, and, and was able to you know, ingrain the need for, uh, you know, extremely high quality, high performance. Uh, and, you know, what I think are, you know, just very consistent qualities of, uh, you know, under, under promising and over delivering. And that's, that's the key, under promising and over delivery. And as I'm glad you're uh, mentioning as well, because a lot of people don't realize how cumbersome it is to do government contracts. It's not an easy road. It takes time. Um, they have specific requirement and you need to follow to the letters. Otherwise, yes. you're not part of the bid or you're out. Yes. Yes. Um, so I have read because I was in biomedical and I've seen some of the government contracts and you had to go through and what the process was and it's not very easy so i'm glad you're explaining this as well so people understand that you know if they want or they're interested in to do a government contract in any kind of businesses we're not only we're talking right now telecom because this is your niche but for anyone doing something with government it takes time it's not like the bids can take several months to be even approved correct correct and you know it is it is very much a uh, incredible attention to detail. It is, you know, mm -hmm. definitely you have to dot every I and cross every T. Um, and you, again, you just have to really be passionate about, you know, about the, you know, about uh, supporting that marketplace. Um, if it's, uh, you know, if you don't have your, your heart and your soul into it, uh, you, you, you're probably not going to be successful. Um, but uh, again, you know, part of the, you know, major part of the success was uh, having great people uh, that would, uh, you know, that would engage and, and embrace yep. the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the culture of the company and, and what, uh, you know, uh, we were uh, focused on accomplishing. Um, and, uh, you know, and we learned a lot of things as well. Um, it was uh, because we were, you know, in that business, we were competing against, uh, you know, the Verizons and the AT&Ts mm -hmm. and, you know, they had, you know, multi-billion dollar contracts with the federal government and people would always ask, you know, how were we successful? And I said, we just pay more attention to detail and work harder. It's, it was really nothing more than that. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, we weren't, you know, we weren't a big, you know, bureaucracy and we weren't, uh, we were able to move very, you know, very uh, efficiently and be, you know, uh, incredibly responsive. And, 
you know, those are you know, traits that I think resonate with uh, all, you know, all successful entrepreneurs. Um, uh, that, you know, that it, it's why you know, companies choose, you know, a smaller, you know, more, um, you know, more fit, more flexible uh, firm where the solutions, you know, may be similar um, because the solution, you know, the, in, in, you know, in the segments we were in, the, the solution itself was somewhat, you know, was fairly commoditized. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the, the widget that's being sold, you know, the widget itself is not the entire solution. You know, the support and the effort and the responsiveness, uh, you know, and the service that you, that you provide along with the widget uh, can be, you know, an incredibly strong differentiator. Oh, absolutely. And as you said, it's about the detail. You don't need to be the biggest one on the block, then you're going to be awarded uh, those contracts at all. It's like you said, it's based on the detail on how flexible you can move. And when you're talking about billion dollar companies like AT&T or T-Mobile, they're not moving as fast as they are because too much bureaucracy, too much hierarchy in there, that's paralyzing compared to who you are and how you created your company and how you run your business as well. So that makes a huge difference. So that's wonderful. So you're starting with the government, you're doing the commercial for telecom. So what's next? Because, okay, you're already busy with the telecom world. So what did you do decide? Uh, so, yeah, so I, you know, the, the <clears throat> business, um, the business started slowing um, after the, um, uh, I want to say uh, uh, the term is, escaped me that the federal government went through a, a sequestration, I believe, in I want to okay. say about 2000 and either 2009 or 2010, where it was really the, the first time since World War II that the federal government had uh, actually spent on, on, an, on an actual basis less money the, in that, in, you know, in the year that followed that it did the year before. Every wow. year before going all the way back to World War II, even if there was, you know, balanced budget amendments or, you know, other efforts by Congress to, you know, to limit spending, uh, the limit was of the increase in the spending, not in the actual spending until, okay. I want to say, 2010. So, uh, so we, you know, looked at it and, you know, kind of evaluated where we were and, uh, you know, made a decision to uh, divest uh, and sell off uh, some of our, our, our operations um, between 2000, you know, in like 2013, 2014. And, you know, that led us to move down an acquisition path uh, into the broader uh, managed IT information technology uh, sector and staffing sector uh, so we were able to acquire a couple of firms there, uh, which really what exposed me to uh, the mergers and acquisitions environment and, and getting deals done. And you know, I found that uh, incredibly, um, uh, you know, both incredibly challenging as well as incredibly rewarding. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's it's a great experience to you know find something that uh, you know you evaluate as a uh, you know, a good company and come in and work with that company and, you know, potentially take some of the things that we had learned um, and work with them to deploy them and, you know, watch them, you know, uh, you know ex- exceed their, the growth that they were having before. Um, nice. And uh, yeah, so that, you know, that, so that really, you know, exposed me to, um, you know, the, the world of mergers and acquisitions, uh, Including you know, capitalization, uh, you know, finding the money and, and having the uh, the funding to you know, complete the acquisitions, undertaking the due diligence, uh, undertaking the uh, uh, you know, successfully executing on the post, uh, uh, you know, the post acquisition activities. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, going back to you know the devil is in the details. Uh, the, yeah. Um, the the. You know, the negotiations and the uh, uh, and, and the efforts that go into uh, finding and successfully closing, uh, you know, an acquisition or of a company are certainly challenging. Yeah. Uh, however, the 
the real challenge comes in after you know, after the company has been acquired, uh, and because that's where you can potentially uh, you know, screw up a lot of things. So we we had a motto of you know first don't break anything. Um, <laughs> yes. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, I love it. Because uh, even though, even though you know, even though it was we we had already bought it, so it wasn't a you, you break it, you bought it. It was we had you know, yes. we bought it, so don't break it. Uh, <laughs> you know, approach and uh, you know, I, I and then know. you know, and then look at you know, you know, look at you know what uh, you know, what they had that worked and what we had that worked, um, and you know, in essence, apply best practices. And how, because, you know, a lot of people don't talk about merger and acquisition, and I've been part of several merger and acquisitions. So for me, what you're talking about, it's too familiar, too familiar with me. How is the people reacted? Because when, and I call it legacy, when a company buys another company, then the company that got bought, the first thing the employees are always thinking, we're going to get fired. They're coming and they're going to change our world. They don't know who we are. And there is a lot of resentment, animosity going on. And when you come from the other side, want to say hello, you have to bring your bulletproof jacket because they're aiming at you. You, like, they are the enemies. And I'm like, no, I'm not the enemies. I'm here to work like you. So how did you handle all of this? Um, you know, it, I'll tell you, I think it's, I think there's two parts to answer that question. There's the way that we did it and the way that I would do it now. Um, so we did our acquisitions primarily through what are referred to as asset purchases, asset yep. purchase agreements, where you buy the assets and you assume certain liabilities. And you know, the primary reason that uh, it, the, you know, lawyers and advisors advocate for a, you know, an asset purchase is that you don't acquire, uh, you know, unlike a, you know, a stock purchase, uh, stock purchase agreement. So an SPA, you don't acquire any kind of legacy risks that the company may have from, you know, a lawsuit from five okay. years ago. Okay. Uh, what I would say though, is the integration challenges that we found in doing asset purchases where you had to have, you know, all the contracts, the customer contracts assigned, the vendor contracts assigned, the, you know, the, you had to move the employees, you know, on the closing date to, you know, a new, uh, you know, new employment environment, you know, as far as, you know, a different payroll provider, all that had to be done on, on the closing. So, you know, that did create a fair amount of disruption and that also did lead to, as you mentioned, I think more apprehension mm -hmm. on the part of those, uh, you know, in the company that we were buying as to, you know, what's going to happen to us. Um, you know, I would say, you know, it worked and it's, you know, it can be successful, um, but it does create more challenges, especially amongst the, you know, if the business you're buying is heavily uh, contingent uh, or, or, or uh, Reliant on its, you know, on its associate base, in, you know, in the company, uh, you know, that does create some challenges. Um, I would say, for the most part, because uh, you know, we were fortunate in that we could position ourselves as, you know, we've been very successful. Um, we want to grow the business. We don't want to, you know, we're not, uh, you know, coming in and looking to lay off everybody, and you know, that's not uh, what we want to do. Uh, you know, and we were pretty straightforward and. You know, we don't want to break the company. Um, we do want to, you know, understand how it works. We value your clients. We value you because your clients, you know, your clients value you. Um, so, yeah, but you, you're going to always have, um, you know, some folks that are, you know, just, uh, you know, reluctant to change. Um, yeah. And then the challenge is just, uh, but I don't think it's really unique to, uh, you know, M&A, um, because the challenge you know, in, in building a company is, uh, you know, you always want to help you know, improve and, and uh, uh, provide the foundation to enable, you know, the associates in the company to succeed and excel. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are those who, 
uh, you know, just for whatever reason, don't want to, um, you know, don't want to stay with, you know, don't want to go with the program, don't want to work hard. I had a, a CEO um, that I knew, uh, and he had a philosophy in his company that he said he didn't want any snails and he didn't want any snakes. Uh, he didn't want, you know, those that were, you know, very, very slow. Um, and he didn't want any, you know, one in the company that was kind of slithering around and, you know, causing yeah. havoc. Um, so, you know, that's how we did it. What I would say now, though, and, and, and this is, you know, each, each situation is different. So I'll preface it with, you know, with that disclaimer. Uh, but I would lean much more heavily to stock purchase agreements. Um, uh, because, uh, and I've seen a number of firms that have, uh, you know, acquired companies in this manner, uh, especially where there's a desire to, uh, you know, keep the existing management team in place. Uh, the, you know, with a stock purchase agreement, the only thing that's happening is, is who owns the shares of the company, yes. so to speak. So mm-hmm. you don't have to even, you know, uh, Theoretically, you don't have to even let the employees know. Um, I don't know that, that I would counsel that, but you don't have to go and you know, get in front of all the customers and say you've got to you know put in new uh, you know new agreements in place. Get in front of all of the vendors. Uh, you know, go through you know, changing employee benefit providers and payroll yeah. services and, and, and new new uh, uh, HR processes. So. Uh, again, the subject to the situation, and, and, you know, and the potential risks, uh, you know, with that, with a particular company that, you know, with some there may be might be more risks of, you know, legacy challenges uh, or legacy, you know, risk factors uh, and risk exposure from a stock purchase agreement. Um, I, I am a much, but Bottom line is I'm a much bigger advocate of stock purchase agreements now than I was uh, back then, uh, because I think there are there are methodologies that can be used to minimize the uh, that that legacy and potential risk um, uh, of something bad from the past happening. Uh, uh, you know, through you know, in this day and age, there's so many you know different types of insurance products that can be put in place. For example. Uh, to cover you know, certain types of risks that you know, maybe weren't available uh, 10 years ago. It's just one example of risk mitigation strategies. And, you know, and I would also add that that was something that uh, uh, you know, we had really built into a, you know, a very strong uh, capability, which was risk mitigation. Um, and uh, I think that served us very well um, because it, what we found is, uh, if, if you want to, if you try to avoid risk, you, my opinion is, you're not going to have as much success exactly. as you could. You may not have, uh, you know, the easiest way. You may not have any success. I mean, the easiest <laughs> way not to get, you know, hit by a car is to never cross the street, you know, or never exactly. leave your house. So, uh, so you know, we focus very heavily on risk mitigation, uh, and so I think there are, you know, there are a number of, of ways to mitigate risks, um, uh, you know, through, through a stock purchase agreement that maybe weren't available or weren't commonly, commonly available going back 10 plus years. So through everything you have done so far for the past two decades of going into the unknown, taking your severance and say, have a nice day, people, I'm going to create my own business. I'm ready to go. What have been the biggest challenges on this entire road for the past 20 years? And what would it have what would you have done differently now than you know it? Uh, I think, you know, I mean the challenges, the, the challenges obviously change and evolve. Um, I think you know, one of the one of the statements that I've heard a uh uh a private investor in, in you know, lower middle market companies. So companies with say, you know, one to maybe 20 million in uh, annual EBITDA um, is, he said, there's only one thing I know that's accurate about any forecast that I'm giving. 
and that's that it was that it's going to be wrong. That's the only thing I'm sure about in a forecast. Okay. Um, so, but that said, I think uh, yeah, forecasting is probably an underutilized um, capability in a lot of, especially faster growing companies, but I think in a lot of companies, uh, it's, it's a discipline that I think can really instill, you know, better overall leadership and overall performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that's something that uh, we probably could have done better. Um, I would say for me personally, um, again, you know, knowing what I know now, yeah. at AT&T, you know, I had, you know, I had sales and sales leadership. So I'd always been a salesperson and, you know, whether it was a sales manager or director or what, you know, whatever, because uh, I got promoted, you know, I, at, at my heart, I was a salesperson, um, uh, you know, and an entrepreneur. And as a salesperson, I probably overlooked, I, I probably over-focused on top-line growth and did not focus as much on uh, profitability growth and building overall value, you know, an overall value of the company. Um, you know, as I think I had mentioned uh, when we spoke earlier, you know, we were a very fast growing company for a number of years. Yep. We kind of bounced around during the dot-com uh, implosion. And I think in, you know, 2004, we were at like 300,000 in revenue for the year. And by 2009, we were at 22 million plus. So mm-hmm. it was an incredible journey. Um, mm-hmm. You know, lots of, lots of uh, uh, plates in the air that uh, you're trying to balance. Um, but in hindsight, I probably would have. Uh, so the growth, obviously, the, the, grow, the growth opportunities were there. Uh, but I think I probably should have modulated a little bit more uh, from a, you know, just a, a very heavy focus on chasing the growth to a more balanced focus on uh, you know, prudently, prudently pursuing growth while also uh, prudently building the value of the company. Um, I probably would say that I, you know, over-invested, uh, if you will, uh, when I should have been doing a little bit more of, uh, of a balance of the investment for growth and the, um, retention of, you know, retention of profits to build wealth in the business, to build value, to build value in the business. Yeah. And, you did you ever had a business background beforehand, or it was just pure sales when you started to work? Um, well, I mean, I I, I started at AT and T out of um, you know out of college, so I had a marketing degree for my undergrad, and then at AT and T, uh, they were generous in uh, uh, paying for my MBA. But <clears throat> you know, but I guess the answer to that is. Kind of, because for you know over half of my career at AT and T, I was in a managerial role, but I was still managing a sales organization. So, um, so when I say kind of, it's not like I had you know a couple of years of say, you know, consulting right after college or something like that. Um, so. Let's put it this way. There is a a learning curve because I think a lot of people don't understand. Um, And I'm, you know, talking with business owners a lot, uh, even in my coaching business, it's realizing that not everybody understands the overall spectrum of how to run a company. You can know your your gift, your talent, your skill set, your product, your um, services very well. But overall, nobody gives you a crash course on how to run a company. So absolutely, you know, it feels like you picked up as you went along and you created your business. It feels like you picked it up as you went along as well, what you were supposed to do, because nobody gave you the handbook and say, oh, here we go, David, you can go. Here we go. Here's your book. Have fun with that. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of that is to make sure uh, that you have uh, a solid team of advisors. Yeah. Um, I think you know, what I uh, 
uh, would have done uh, differently is I would have put a, a more formal board of advisors in place uh, with you know different backgrounds. Uh, you know, I had some great advisors, but they were more uh, you know ad hoc and not formalized, and there were probably some gaps. Uh, and and I agree with you. I mean, I talked to a number of you know even mid-sized businesses that you know, they really don't even understand their balance sheet. You know, everyone looks at everyone looks at their P and L. They don't look. They they don't understand their balance sheet. They don't really think about their balance sheet. Uh, they don't really give much thought to you know cash flow forecasting and statements yeah. of cash flow. You know, as long as there's you know money in the bank and uh, you know they have a reasonable belief that something's going to come in and they know where you know their their next four weeks of uh, uh, bills are. That's to, you know that's kind of the degree to it and. Uh, you know, I, I like to remind you know, business owners that wealth is created on the balance sheet, not necessarily on the on the P and L. Um, you know, even though it's very, you know, uh, it, you know, it's it's, I would say very normal. And again, it depends upon the you know the company and the sector. But you know, valuations are for the most part going to be on some you know multiple of EBITDA. So a uh, you know, a company could argue that, you know, the value is based upon the P&L. Um, but I would argue that the value is as much based upon the balance sheet. Um, and the balance sheet's kind of that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, heart healthy type thing where, you know, one of the commercials where you put your fingers on it and you see your EKG type of, uh, of monitor, you know, that's the kind of thing that, uh, uh, you know, I believe you know a balance sheet gives you is it really gives you a much better understanding of the fundamental um, uh, uh, basis of your uh, the fundamental soundness of your business. Absolutely, and looking at years to year sales as well, because I think if you look at the history of your sales, you get a better idea on where it's going up, where it's going down. Uh, a lot of people don't do that, but like you said, when people think there is money in the bank and they're relaying on their sales a little too much, they could have a surprise at the end of the day. Um, I used to work a few years ago for a small company and we were able to modify those sales based on what I was seeing as the data because the, the, the numbers always talk. They tell you a story. Right. And... Um, one of the commodities actually was starting to fail. And I saw it right away and I pointed out to, um, to my boss who was the um, VP of um, development. His answer was very interesting. He said, oh yeah, that's normal sales fluctuate. And I'm like, no, there is a problem here. And they didn't listen to me. And I was saying over and over every week, something is wrong, it's not working. And for that community, they lost $1.2 million. Mm -hmm. But I, I gave the warning first, but they probably, ah, now. And I'm like, yeah. But uh, the commodity compensated it because there were things coming on the other side. So people are like, no, your numbers will tell you a story. And if something doesn't work here, it's time to look at it and see what we can do to modify it or switch, or if it doesn't sell that much, then revisit the subject and see if we can do better. If not, create something different. But a lot of people are massaging data that the end, the overall is right here. We're making the, you know, we're making the target. But if you're looking at the details, it's like, well, but there is some holes and here that could be, uh, if we look at it closely, uh, fixed. Yes, I, I completely agree. And, you know, that leads me to also, you know, another area that I don't think there is, that I think there, I think in the most successful companies, there is a focus on, but in most companies, there's not. And that is the issue of key performance indicators and the effective, yeah, utilization, the effective, effective utilization of them, because you're, mm -hmm. you know, your financial statements obviously tell you one aspect, and but yes. they're also, you know, basically, you know, historical looking, uh, yep. you know, of what was actually accomplished, where, uh, and I am not an advocate of, uh, you know, a large number of KPIs, uh, because then, then they kind of become just noise. So I think, 
you know, a combination, excuse me, of having, you know, just four or five key metrics that you are, that you passionately follow and pay attention to, um, you know, is in, you know, maybe it's a few more depending upon the company. Uh, but I think those can be, you know, the effective utilization of those uh, uh, can be incredibly powerful. And, you know, and especially, you know, uh, you know closely held companies that, uh, you know, that choose, uh, uh, and I don't have an opinion on this one way or the other, but uh, choose uh, you know, not to disclose uh, a lot of financial details with a lot of their, you know, associates and employees in the company. Uh, you know, KPIs can be something that, you know, can be utilized to really you know, drive performance throughout the company. Yes. Um, you know, they can be tied to, and, and, and I, you know, maintain that they should be tied to, uh, you know, components to any, you know, compensation plans or, you know, bonus set uh, types of approaches so that, uh, you know, the, the, incentives are aligned with the activities uh, that are critical for the company to succeed. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately too often I see, you know, and this was, uh, you know, and I learned this uh, and it was just so frustrating for 12 years at AT AT&T was that, you know, you would think it's such a large corporation that they would really have, uh, you know, have it down to a science, how to align compensation and incentive structures to company performance. And, uh, you know, maybe at the, you know, the senior officer level, you know, they were able to, you know, to do it with uh, stock options, et cetera. But, you know, at the middle management level and, yeah. you know, and at the you know, individual contributor level, um, it was, uh, you know, it's extraordinary because it's not only at and it's all of those big uh, corporation who you would think <coughs> have it all together, but they don't. It's um, it's amazing to see how much, <laughs> how much not connected they are. But I always said because I worked for billion dollar companies too in the past. What saved those companies were the sales, because they were selling. Regardless how poorly functioning they were and they are and they still are, it's the sales that saved their neck. Otherwise, they would not be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So like you said, a KPI could help uh, bring uh, the first uh, situation or what something doesn't work and can be fixed very easily. And too many of those, like you said, is just a background noise. It's useless. But if they were using it properly, I'm sure company will run better for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that you know, ultimately turns into, uh, you know, into greater value. Uh, you know, greater, greater monetary value. So, um, and so, you know, I've tried to, you know, apply these, uh, you know, my, my primary focus uh, currently is on my, uh, you know, my innovative strategy group company, uh, which, um, uh, and uh, you know, we, I do do some advisory work with, uh, uh, you know, from a consulting perspective with, uh, you know, lower middle market companies, but the primary focus is uh, under, uh, the mergers and acquisition side, you know, that firm is primarily focused as a, uh, what's referred to as a buy side advisor. Uh, okay. So we are very active in that, uh, in that space right now. And, you know, I think as you're aware, a buy side advisor is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. We're, you know, our clients are the, you know, the private equity firms and the, uh, you know, the, the, The family offices uh, that have the money and that are looking to, you know, acquire or invest in uh, businesses, and then our job is to, you know, help them find those companies. Um, Are you the matchmaker? uh, Yeah, yeah. Yes, you are. Say that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, and the thing about a buy side is, you know, our compensation is paid by the, uh, you know, by the private equity firm or the family office or the, you know. Um, and certainly there are some firms that we have that uh, will provide you know, various forms of debt capital. So uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very exciting business to focus on because it gives me the opportunity to see, you know, a lot of transactions uh, and you know, stay familiar with what's going on in the market. And it, 
also, the, you know, one of the re- most, most rewarding is it gives me an opportunity to talk with you know, so many uh, you know, great entrepreneurs uh, in, you know, in various industries. And uh, uh, you know, as uh, uh, someone once mentioned to me that if you've met one family office, you've met one family office. And I like to say that if you met if you've met one entrepreneur, you've met one entrepreneur. Yes, uh, because every you know every entrepreneur uh, is unique, different, uh, yes. different motivations, different. Uh, uh, you know, I spoke with with one recently who you know he is an engineer. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, engineering is in his blood. He you know loves the product development side, and by his own by his own admission. Um, is not does not have much skill and, and has absolutely no passion for for sales. Yeah. Um, and then you know on the other side of that spectrum is you know the super salesperson who uh, all they do is promote twenty four seven, and that's uh, you know what uh, that's what makes them motivated. And uh, you know obviously uh, depending upon the, the company structure, you know different one you know different entrepreneurs that have different goals. I, you know I remember. Early on, my kids were young, and uh, my motivation in growing the company was, well, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll I'll follow the model of the Pritzker family, and you know, I'll build Hyatt hotels, and I'll build you know all of these different companies, and I'll pass it on to my children. And as they got older, I realized that they had very little interest in the companies. <laughs> they wanted to see me successful, but they had you know, it just wasn't where they wanted to uh, yeah uh, to focus. So. Um, and, and so to the point, you know, you're saying that the, you know, the motivations change, uh, you know, someone's near retirement, uh, you know, someone, I remember talking to uh, an accountant of a, uh, a, a, a mid-sized firm, uh, and he was telling, he, he was talking about us, he was telling a story about, you know, a, a client, the CEO and, and owner of a client that, of a firm that had been a long-term client of this accounting firm. And the current CEO was the third generation. And he was kind of complaining to his advisor that his son, you know, his grandfather would work all hours when he was starting the business and his dad would work all hours. And, uh, and, and he certainly followed that. And he was complaining that his son, just really didn't want to work that hard and was in essence trying to make a case of, uh, you know, an anti-millennial, the millennials didn't want to work that hard. And when the accountant actually, the accountant asked him, you know, does your son want to, you know, does your son want to take over this business? He goes, well, of course he does. And then the accountant had separately arranged a meeting with the current CEO's son. And the son said, you know, that's just not what I want to do. I, I respect that, you know, I'm fourth generation, but this just is not the, this is not where my passion is. If I, if I were to, you know, try to you know, run the company, it would be a job for me, it would not be a, you know, it would not be a passion. Um, yeah. And the dad had never asked his son what his no. son wanted. So, uh, so, you know, again, you know, each entry, you met one entrepreneur, you've met one entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, I'm always happy to you know have a conversation uh, uh, with uh, you know with those that, uh, uh, depending on how you want to classify it, have the intestinal fortitude or just plain stupid enough to try to start business. Um, <laughs> you know, I would say that entrepreneurs are not stupid. Maybe people think they're crazy, then we're crazy, but we're going and following our passion. And yeah. what when you're talking, and I'm just speaking with you, and I'm speaking with others, uh, business um, owners, you can hear and feel the passion. You can say, you can breathe, you can you can see it. It's amazing to see this. And a lot of people, you know, it takes courage to do mm-hmm. what we're doing because we don't know what tomorrow's going to be. But we're going because we're the trailblazers. We could be in a cozy office and just be okay working a nine to five job and say, okay, it's a paycheck. But there will be something missing. And there is people who are afraid to take to go into the unknown because it takes courage to do that. It seems, you know, when 
people are listening, like uh, they're going to be listening to the podcast. They're going to be listening to you. It's like, wow, this is so cool, blah, blah, blah. But there is a lot of work. There is courage. There is passion. There is beliefs and faith that it's all combined in one. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think there is the stigma. You know, there's a, you know, just in in you know in our world, there's a you know a stigma, a negative stigma of a quote unquote failure. Um, obviously, successful entrepreneurs are celebrated. Um, but you know, anytime anyone quote unquote fails at something, uh, you know, it's you know, there's a there, there's a negative perception or connotation. And you know, I don't think trying and failing is bad. And quite frankly, I think trying and failing uh, is how you learn. Um, you, you certainly yeah. learn from success, but you you know, you probably learn you know, even more from failure. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of, uh, you know, we had a philosophy of, you know, let's fail fast. Um, you know, I think that, you know, that terminology has become more prevalent, you know, over the years in Silicon Valley, you know, and, and in those kind of you know, startup environments, uh, but there's merit to it. it it's, uh, if you're not trying something, uh, you're not learning, you're not growing. Um, but the best way, you know, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, I forgot if it was Newton or you know, someone else who said it, uh, but the, you know, the definition of uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the, you know, cliches I, I you know, I live by, but it gets into, you know, fail fast um, and move on because you're definitely going to learn. You learn. For me, failure is a is a way of success. That's mean for me, failure in my view is well, you took the wrong road. So now you need to back up and look at what else. Because that was the wrong path. It would never work. So the door are closed. Now step back and see where the doors are open. Yep. It should not be, I felt I'm done. If you felt right. undone, then it's like okay. You're not, it's, it's always a test in my view. It's like the universe is testing you. Are you going to continue? Because if we give you the road and that's an easy road, what's the point? You're not going to learn. But are you determined? And are, do you really, are you hungry for it? Do you really want it? Yeah. How bad do you want it? Yeah, we had a, uh, you know, we had a saying, uh, you know, that we constantly hammered into the, you know, into the culture, the company and that, you know, um, an analogy, an analogy, if you will, was you know, what the objective is, is an essence of room. And our goal is to get into that room. Yes. And a lot of companies and a lot of people will, you know, knock on the door with a feather, so to speak. And if the door doesn't open, then they'll say, well, I tried. Uh, and our philosophy was, you know, you, you pound down the door. And if you can't get the door open, you find a window and you go through it. And if you can't find a window, you get a jackhammer and you go through the wall. You know, it, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, but the, you know, the, so, you know, contradicting, you know, the earlier statement of, you know, I don't, I think failure has a negative connotation to it, but also a philosophy that says failure is not an option from the perspective of, you know, what's that room for, you know, for you and, you know, making a commitment to try a whole bunch of different ways to get into that room and not viewing it as well. I didn't get into the room because I knocked and therefore I failed. You know, it's, it's making that your objective. And then the failure becomes in the various different ways. You didn't necessarily succeed on the first effort, but you kept your primary objective in front of you and you, and you always found a way to, to eventually get into the room. Exactly. It's a way to adapt and modify too, because mm -hmm. maybe the way where you go about it is not the right path. So you need to go back and modify what you're doing. But I believe that um, quick success is nice, but the quicker you go, the harder you're going to fall. And I feel that if you struggle, if you move along and you struggle more and you're more challenged, then the growth you guys and the maturity you get at the end of the day, will help you to move forward where you need to be. I believe there is a learning curve we have to go through when we are entrepreneurs. Yeah, and I just came across an interesting you know, uh, 
an interesting article. I think it was on startups.com. I don't, I'm not sure, but in essence, it was an, a, you know, an, an entrepreneur uh, that was sharing a story where you know, they were growing very quickly and then they ran into some challenges um, and they made the very hard decision to, uh, you know, substantially shut down the company. You know, they, they uh, got out of their offices. They laid off a number of people. They sold their office furniture. They went back to working at home. Um, and you know, he, you know, as he, he tells the story, he said, you know, it was very, very tough. And it was an incredibly tough decision. But he said the benefit of it was that, you know, we weren't constantly facing, you know, this end of runway challenge where if we don't get to X before we run out of, you know, before we run out of runway, before we run out of cash, the business is going to shut down. So yeah, his philosophy of the story was it's not always about the growth and, and, and only growth. But it's the real key to success is longevity. And so by not having the runway, they were able to more, you know, not be focused on, you know, near-term failure, but be more focused on what was it going to take to succeed over the long term. And, you know, the outcome is the company turned in over the long term to be like a $700 million in, in revenue a year company. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he hadn't made that decision at that point in the company's, uh, uh, you know, in the company's evolution, uh, instead of being a seven hundred million dollar a year revenue company, they would have been, uh, uh, you know, they would have been, uh, they would have been, you know, closed business. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes you have to make the hard decision just to be able to move to the next level. So, but this is so interesting. As I said, it's very, very interesting on on the journey we're all taking. On ours. So, what is next for you? What What are the next exciting things you're going to be doing? Are you going to have another company? Or are you still just within the cluster of your own companies? So, um, so Innovative Strategy Group LLC is the you know the primary company that I'm I'm working through right now, uh, working to uh, you know find uh, companies that are interested in either you know, being sold um, or you know, being you know, we're, we're having additional capital put put into the business on either a minority, I'm, I'm sorry, on either a majority, but also there's a you know with so much money in private equity, there's a uh, a willingness uh, you know to by some firms to put in minority uh, capital. There's a whole bunch of different and very interesting structures that uh, can that can be brought to bear for those owners that. Uh, want to you know continue to operate the business and you know are looking for additional capital. Want to you know diver- maybe diversify their uh, you know their financial holdings. Uh, you know, so many entrepreneurs have you know, s- such a large percentage of their wealth concentrated in their you know in, in their private company. Uh, so finding those businesses um, and you know and working and growing that uh, that effort is my primary focus. And then what I anticipate over time is that I will start to look uh, not just for companies that, uh, you know, I'm in essence a, uh, you know, a matchmaker, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, between the companies and the private equity firms, but that I take an active, uh, uh, the, you know, that I take an active uh, role in, uh, you know, in some, some in some manner uh, as it relates to, you know, the ownership in, in partnership with private capital. And uh, I, I will, uh, I anticipate that I will not uh, move back in unless it's on a, uh, you know, on, on some sort of interim basis into uh, you know, being you know, interactive with managing firms, you know, as either a CEO or president role. Mm-hmm. Um, but I anticipate, you know, uh, you know chairman or those kind of roles. So, you know, I intend, I intend to continue to acquire companies uh, uh, that, you know, I think are really doing some very interesting things. And like I said, uh, you know, when I first started, you know, my journey uh, and on the entrepreneurial road 20 years ago, it was, you know, kind of run after everything. Um, and, uh, you know, I find that each day uh, I realized how much I didn't know the day before. Um, so I'm constantly learning and and again, one of the things that I'm learning and, and have learned is uh, I'm not going to chase everything for the sake of chasing everything. Um, I'm going to you know, go after those things that make the most amount of sense and, 
uh, and again, you, uh, you do it prudently and smart. Exactly. I absolutely agree with you. So that sounds extremely exciting. Uh, any word of advice for anyone who's uh, going through challenges or even want to start up their own company? Uh, well, for those that are going through challenges, my strong advice is seek help early. Um, you know, there's firms, for example, you know, and that's, you know, advisory firms, uh, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, again, see, seek help early um, because, you know, you know, going back to my, you know, my story about the entrepreneur that decided to significantly, you know, uh, uh, constrain his business and, and really shut things down is, you know, again, that it, it's to that longevity. And if you see storm clouds on the horizon, you know, don't ignore them. Uh, don't, uh, don't go all ostrich on the, uh, you know, on the issues. Um, yeah. Seek them early because you know, I was talking to one firm recently uh, where you know, I asked them about uh, you know, their appetite for you know, distress situations. Um, and he said, well, he goes, here's, here's kind of how we, you know, our firm views that aspect is you know, we'll take on something that you know, maybe there, you know, there needs to be some remodeling or uh, you know, that you know, there needs to be some strike, you know, there needs to be some, you know, a room needs to be fixed or something like that. Um, but he said, you know, we're not going to take on something where the entire building is on fire. That's not, <laughs> that's not where, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's not where our appetite lies. So, yeah. uh, so the point is, you know, if you're finding yourself in, in, you know, in, in potential challenges, uh, you know, talk to people, um, feel free to reach out to me. Um, uh, and so you know, address it or address it earlier so that it doesn't, you know, because by the time, the, you know, by the time the building's on fire, it's you know, pretty much too late. Exactly. So where is people can connect with you? Uh, so they obviously can connect, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and then my, uh, my email is my first name, David, or first name, D, last name, S-M-A-T, at I-N-N-S-T-G dot com. Um, or they can give me a call at uh, 312-953-0431. Um, so send me an email, send me a text, uh, send me, you know, send me a phone call, uh, ping me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk with fellow entrepreneurs, and especially if you're in a position as a company that uh, you're you're interested in capital in, in whatever way, shape, or form, or you just want to understand it better, uh, mm -hmm. you know what the options are that you may want to pursue. You know, one, three, five years from now, um, always happy, always happy to have the discussion. Uh, you know, I have been blessed through my career with so many great people that were willing to, uh, you know, just spend an extra hour or two. Uh, with me and impart their advice to me, especially when, um, uh, you know, especially in my early days where I just had so many questions and so many people. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I, 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 I feel comfortable in saying that I feel uh, that I've done a lot of things right, but I'm also very knowledgeable in saying that I've done a heck of a lot of things wrong. So, uh, <laughs> Yes, to learn from my mistakes or you yep, know, to yep. gain some small amount of value, not, you know, not just from hearing about my successes, uh, because obviously we all, we, we all yeah, are human beings. We want to talk about our successes. Uh, you know, we want to talk about our kids' successes. We don't want to talk, you know, no one talks about their kids' failure. Right. Well, I'd like to talk about both because I believe that one doesn't go without the other. Yeah. And if you don't talk about the challenges you've got, it's hypocritical because the younger generation, I assume that, and I made that on several podcasts, a comment, they think that it's a drive through I'm going to go like it's McDonald's. I'm going to order. I'm going to pay. I'm going to get it. And it's like, no, that doesn't work this way in real life. So for me, Speaking with everybody and ask for the challenges is because we need to highlight the truth. It's not all roses and bonbon every day. If it was, I'm more than happy. I agree. But my point, you know, my point is just it's general human nature. You know, you see people that uh, 
you know, put the, you know, the sticker on their car that says my child is an honor student at, you know, such and such. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't see people putting a sticker on the back of their car that says, you know, my child just flunked fifth grade. You know, you might learn a lot from the parents, you know, if you're, you know, again, if, if you're as a parent struggling with, you know, one of your children's, uh, you know, academic challenges, you might actually learn a lot from the parent that went through it and how they got through it. Exactly. What they did. So, um, so again, I, you know, me, just like everyone else, I can talk for hours about all the great things I think I've accomplished in my life. Uh, but I'm also happy to, you know, impart the things that I think, uh, uh, I massively, or, or, you know, maybe not all, you know, or even not massively screwed up along the way. Well, we all do. That's part of the learning curve. But at least it's nice to be able to talk it in a candid way, because I know other people who are going to be listening to you are going to realize, yes, I'm an entrepreneur, too. And yes, there is some up and there is some downs. But it's at least a reality. It's not all roses and bonbons. Oh, I win this and I did this. Okay, fine. But there is another side of the coin that it's nice to highlight and talk a little bit about it. So that's why I love to talk to people and ask about both sides of the coin. So, but no, thank you so much for taking the time today to be part of my podcast. Um, it's thank you, thank you, Emma. And uh, you know, I'll also you know, send a, a thanks to... Uh, uh, there's a couple of, of, uh, of novelists, uh, authors of novels that I, that I like to read. And one, I think, uh, you know, it just touched me because in his preface, uh, he said, and, so, and I haven't seen this that much, but he said, thank you to, you know, to you talking to the reader. He said, what you're giving me is the most precious uh, thing that you have, uh, uh, which is your time. So thank you for giving me your time to read this book. And I make it my, you know, commitment that I will give you the most that I can out of the time you're giving me. So, you know, thank you to your viewers that have committed the time to watch this podcast. Um, more than happy to, uh, more than happy, uh, uh, again, to have that conversation. So, um, now it's been an honor and a pleasure to speaking with you and I might be calling you again and said, you know what, let's do part two, because that was to me and very extremely insightful. And I know other entrepreneurs and anybody who is going to be listening to it, because I'm uh, I have over 80 countries who are listening to my podcast around the world. It's an inspiration for everybody. And to me, listening to you, it's an inspiration for anyone to do something on the side. You don't have to quit your job. You can start something on the side. Like I said to people, you don't have to quit your job. Start yes. something on the side like a hobby yep. and yep. see where yep. it goes. Yep. Yep. I don't so. say again, you know, if, it, if you're passionate about it um, and you know, even if it's a side hustle, you know, who knows, uh, you know, where it may take off. Um, yeah. And, and again, you know, if you're passionate, things, it, it, if you're passionate about something, it becomes a lot easier to work 60, 80 hours a week if that's what's necessary to get things get things accomplished then you know if it's a job so, uh, I so agree. thank you again no thank you so much david